telling stories from the EGA Clubhouse. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, today we have a wonderful podcast. We have two veterans uh, of accessibility services within the media. From the UK, working with Red Bee is Tom Wooden, and from Toronto, uh, working with Course Media and within Course Media, Key Media Services, is Mike Menard. Guys, I'll just throw it to you, Tom, if you could do a quick introduction, and then after that, Mike, maybe you can do an introduction. Sure. Uh, well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. So my name's Tom Wooden, as you said, I, I head up the Access Services uh, service area for Red Bee Media provides a range of services to the broadcast industry and we provide full access services so that's captioning sign language and audio description or described video uh, in the UK France Netherlands Spain Australia and but in but in the US as well so it's a it's an international uh, service area and I'm delighted to be um, in in this meeting in this podcast with you and uh, with Mike it's a pleasure to have you Tom and how about you Mike can you give us a brief introduction Sure. Uh, similar to Tom, thanks for inviting me and having me. My name is Mike Menard. I'm the manager of accessibility services within Key Media Services, which is a uh, an entity owned by Course Entertainment. Um, we provide a, a range of broadcast services within Key Media Services, including origination, um, accessibility services, and post-production. Uh, but my area of specialty is uh, access services. Fantastic. So guys, uh, again, thank you for both for being here today. It's uh, it's great to have you as guests. Um, just for, we're going to focus a little bit on the future of our services within um, accessibility in media, but also I want to speak today also about what we're doing now, which is the future. Uh, some uh, you know some of the uh, the new technologies we're using in ASR uh, synthetic, and we'll get to those. But first, Tom, I wanted to ask you. Uh, seeing the UK was the first to come up with NER uh, measuring of uh, live closed captioning and closed captioning services. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit about that and who's the governing body that is actually measuring that and what they like to see? How has that been adapted to, say, respeak in ASR within the UK? And maybe, Mike, you can follow up with it, what they're doing in Canada also. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting topic. And I, I guess I, I just start actually, and um, when you say NER, just just for anyone who isn't aware, that's a that's an accuracy measurement framework for for closed captions. Um, it was devised by a guy called Pablo Romero Fresco, uh, who's long been dedicated to looking at how accessibility can be provided successfully in the media industry and beyond. And it's been increasingly adopted internationally. And it provides a useful frame of reference for measuring the quality of closed captions. And um, I, I would just frame that slightly because I, I tend to measure quality. Actually, there's three important things that we need to think about. And we often think about the quality of the words you see on the screen. Is there a mistake there? Which is obviously really important. But you know, the most important thing about accessibility, the first quality metric is, is it present? Is it there at all? And that means, does the program you're watching carry it? And it also means is, you know, if you're providing a service, is that service is always up and always running when you expect it to be. So that's always always the first one I look at. And, and word level accuracy, you know, is critical within that. Are you providing high level accuracy? There's one other one other metric I, I provide, which isn't very scientific, but I call it the Twitter 
metric, I suppose we ought to call it the X metric now, uh, <laughs> which is, is there an error that appears that makes everyone go, oh, that looks awful, or that was a mistake. It's the sort of thing that affects brands. It's the sort of thing that affects, um, you know, you'll get often get quite a lot of publicity about these. And in some cases, you can have a very successful period of closed captioning with one error. But if that error is a doozy, it's a, if it's a sort where people are going to be talking about and taking screen caps and sharing them on social media, then broadcasters will understandably, you want to understand what's happened there. So we need to think about quality in the round. But NER is a very useful way for us to look at how we're doing providing quality. It's a good way for broadcasters and regulators to understand quality. Just to be absolutely clear, what we typically will talk about, if you're looking at transcripts, you'll talk about something called word error rate, W-E-R. Uh, and that's just a straight comparison in the texts, you know, which words are included in your clean text, are they all included in the other text. NER is much better adapted to what closed captions need to look like. So it will accept that maybe you will want to edit some stuff out that's unimportant in order to make sure the presentation of the captions is readable and accessible. That's one thing it will do. It will also make a distinction between serious errors that mislead you and may not even be obvious on the screen, and very minor errors that are easy to sort of mentally blank out and you just accept that they're they're, they're, they're parts of, of some of the errors that can be made. So that might be prepositions or something like that or, or a missing word. So it just it just measures things that are important to accessibility. Here's a rule that this immediately tells us is that automatic transcription is not good captioning in and of itself. Right. That's why NER is useful, and NER now helps us provide comparison between fully automatic workflows and human workflows or stenography workflows or re-speaking workflows. We can look at that in the round. Regulators are looking at it. Uh, Ofcom, to answer your question, Colin, is the, is the communications regulator in the UK, and obviously every market has its own communications regulators. None of the communications regulators in the markets that we operate in actually have NER baked into their regulation. Oh. It is fair to say, however, that they are all interested in understanding how we can support quality of accessibility and make sure it's serving the purpose that it needs to serve. I think, Mike, I'm right in saying that Canada does have it baked into its regulation. It is probably one of the only regulatory frameworks, to my knowledge anyway, at the moment that does. Yeah, that's that's correct, Tom. First of all, excellent explanation of both WER and NER uh, there. Um, thank you for saving me a lot of uh, a lot of words there. Uh, trying to do the same, um, but you're absolutely right. The CRTC in Canada has uh, replaced uh, word error rate with NER as part of um, the conditions of license, and so broadcasters in Canada are expected to exceed a rate of 98.0. Um, as the minimum threshold for live closed captioning. And when that change occurred, it was very interesting because um, we had to undergo uh, a level of certification within the country. Um, we had to uh, formalize the certification process and make sure that all, all of our evaluators uh, fully understood NER and uh, some of the nuances within it. And also our closed captioners uh, within Canada and those serving Canada had to better understand um, how NER worked and make uh, use of that knowledge to make better decisions on the fly when verbatim captioning is not possible, which uh, within live closed captioning in high speech rate situations is uh, fairly common. Right. 
Wonderful answers, guys. And as, as much as we are uh, speaking about the future of the technologies within accessibility, it's also very important that we talk about these regulations and these processes, how we move forward uh, with accessibility, not just the technologies, but these processes to obviously give our consumer a better product. And I think that's really important. And I think I'm hoping that more countries adapt the model that it is baked into uh, you know, uh, broadcast licensing, and hopefully uh, they can follow suit. I know I'm not exactly sure what's going on in the U.S. right now with their, with their uh, the FCC and their um, accuracy rate and how that how that is measured. Mike, do you have any idea of what's going on down there? Yeah, they don't presently have uh, an accuracy metric um, that closed captioning companies are are required to exceed. Okay. Um, there's some gray areas uh, within their structure. Um, their structure is a little bit more dependent on viewer complaints and reacting to viewer complaints. Right. Um, whereas Canada's regulatory environment's more of a proactive um, uh, approach. And um, it's interesting, though, because because Canada has a more rigid and strict um, regulatory environment, I think that the entire accessibility in industry as a whole benefits because in many ways, um, meeting these requirements uh, has forced the industry to improve their methods, improve their training, uh, and you know, servicing uh, the Canadian marketplace ultimately uh, benefits all uh, consumers of uh, accessibility. Right, well, thank you. Uh, within, within these, uh, you know, the uh, regulatory process and hitting that 98%, um, and Tom, do they have a, a percentage marker within uh, the UK also? We will typically tend to agree those with, with broadcasters. I mean, 98% is a fairly standard benchmark. Now, I have to say, NER does have its weaknesses as well. And, and one of those is calling it a percentage rate is slightly misleading because, to be honest, below about 93%, it's garbage. You, okay. you wouldn't measure anything. My favorite analogy is to take that 90 to 100 range and imagine you're eating a meal and score it 1 to 10. And right. so you know if you get three out of ten, so that'll be ninety-three percent in this, it's pretty bad. Right. If you're getting seven, eight out of ten, so you're ninety-seven percent, ninety-eight percent, you you're hitting the right place. We would generally, and I think most uh, providers like P and indeed Red B Media would expect to be hitting ninety-nine percent as much as possible. Um, it can vary according to content. Our, our relationship will be with the broadcasters there. But the other key challenge, of course, is that it's actually quite time consuming to produce this sort of quality analysis. So the sample rate is fairly low. Right. Uh, you have to you have to choose where you where you're sampling um, your your scoring methods. So I think it's it's one amongst many tools that we should be using to assess quality. But right. with so much technological change, which will be coming onto, I'm sure, in the industry, it is really useful to have that benchmarking framework to be able to assess well, okay, we're going to be testing some new technologies, some new production methods here. What's the impact on the NER score? It really comes into its own there. Right. And with that, I mean, ASR, as it advances, do we have a different metrics for uh, for measuring ASR as opposed to, uh, you know, traditional uh, captioning? 
Yeah, no, no. We we think NER has a really important role there because we need to show that there's not a degradation, or if there is, what, what does it, you know, which areas does it look like? Uh, our, our current approach is to look at the different types of content. To take an extreme example, if you've got a heavy music program or pop program with a lot of lyrics, the ASR is going to be less performance in that sort of situation. You're, you're going to get a poor NER score. You want to know that, and you want to know how it would compare to traditional methods, methods of production. Right. What I would say, if you're comparing different ASR engines, which is useful to do, they're not all born equal, right. um, word error rate is actually quite useful there because it just allows for easier measurement, and you can just test between the different engines and, and have a look and see how they're coming out. But in terms of the service we're providing, NER needs to provide that baseline across all production methods. In my view, Michael, I don't know if you agree. I, I, I actually do agree. Um, I think in your description of NER, um, you nicely summarized that one of the key advantages is the way NER um, provides distinction between errors. Um, and I think it's important to have that metric available um, for training and for assessment, you can see the, the amount of, let's say, benign errors that are occurring versus omission of main detail errors. And being able to differentiate between those two things is, is extremely helpful. To your point, I think WER is great for when uh, assessing different ASR engines that might be used as a first pass for, let's say, offline closed captioning, um, because you know that you're going to be cleaning those scripts up regardless. Yeah, agree with that. And as we as we move forward, guys, with uh, technologies within the accessibility uh, within media, uh, the kind of the newest kid on the block in the last two years has been synthetic voice for audio description. Mike, can you? I know the course is right has jumped in two feet with this process, and and you know I would say ninety percent of your broadcast is possibly synthetic. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I would. What 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 advantages do you feel the from a network point of view that gives you, and also what are the challenges within synth over human voice? It's a great question. Um, again, this is a an example of uh, regulation driving innovation. I feel uh, for those who aren't aware and are listening to this podcast in Canada, uh, we went from uh, a mandate of providing approximately four hours of described video content per channel in Canada to four hours per day, seven days a week in the primetime window of 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. As you can imagine, this is a, an enormous increase in described video. And to meet that demand, we needed an, a variety of, of technical innovations, one of those being synthetic voice. One of the key advantages of synthetic voice is, and, and this was particularly the case within uh, the pandemic, um, you can work from home easily. You don't require a record space. You don't require uh, the booking of uh, vocalists. Um, you can have a standard vocal engine that you prefer that's consistent for the entire for an entire series. You could have uh, a writer or a worker working uh, at any any time of the day, uh, potentially around the world um, on your content. And these this type of workflow was not uh, possible um, with the more 
uh, assembly line approach of the past. So that would be one of the, the main advantages. One of the other things that I find interesting about synthetic voice long-term is, is the ability to have possibly uh, re-renderings of uh, descript, described video as technology continues to evolve. Right. So one of the early concerns that I think some people had with synthetic voice was, you know, it, will it sound human enough? Is it lifelike enough? And with every passing year, the technology continues to evolve and improve. We have made synthetic voice a larger part of day-to-day -day life, uh, just as, as people. Uh, it's uh, greeting us at the airports and public transit. We're interacting it with our vehicles. Um, it's part of our Google Assistants and our Alexas. And the quality uh, requirements there are also driving innovation within synthetic voice for described video. And so one of the more recent developments beyond the move from uh, 44 kilohertz to 48 kilohertz audio was uh, the advancement of neural voices. And neural voices um, allow for more intonation and uh, more lifelike, ex expressive um, use of synthetic voice, which was an early criticism. Right. And um, maybe the final thing I'll say on synthetic voice as it relates to described video is that typically if you if you go through the best practices guidelines for many synth uh, many described video uh, booklets that are out there including um, within Canada AMI has, has a wonderful guide um, it's actually encouraged that the narrator whether it be synthetic or human um, takes sort of a monotone approach uh, and a more expressionless uh, type of approach to describe video. And so in some ways, synthetic voice has been a natural fit. Um, within Canada, uh, we've seen very few complaints um, to the technology. And you're right, uh, we're making use of it probably on 90% of our content. We've also um, sold some of our synthetic voice to America. Uh, American broadcasters as well are making great use of this technology. So I think it's here to stay and uh, we just need to continue to refine it and improve it. And um, one of the big uh, skill sets that I don't see heading to the machine realm anytime soon is the writing of described video. Um, good writing uh, has always been the key element to all quality described video and that remains the case with synthetic voice. No, I agree, and it's that's the creative process that we can't take out of this equation, obviously. Um, Tom, within the UK and, and other territories that you're yeah. delivering to, have you found an acceptance for the synthetic voice, or are you meeting resistance? How how's that going? Oh, I love this question. I, I think we should take a moment a bit later on to understand, you know, what is the impact on audiences of the automated technology right. what we feel. But just on synth voice particularly. I'm going to take a different position. It's really interesting hearing, Mike, hearing how capacity demand has driven innovation right. um, and how the production model, which traditionally in the States and Canada has probably relied on voice talent and studio space, has also driven that innovation. Uh, in our market, in the UK specifically, what we've seen is, um, well, first, we have our own internal writers, scripters. They're also sort of they've got a director mentality here as well they they, they look at the content and understand what the appropriate level of description and indeed the the voicing style should be 
and and we've got internal voices. They they are they're often doing the same job, and they're they're very skilled indeed, uh, as as anyone who does this job is. And we typically take a bit more of a pragmatic approach to the content. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. We had to do a, a show called Naked Naked Attraction, which uh, is a show where people of all shapes and sizes uh, and different uh, you know levels of attractiveness and, and things like that get completely naked and they're revealed gradually over time and you as an audio describer have a real challenge right if you're going to do that <laughs> i can tell you in that situation a monotone is absolutely not the right approach you need to find a tone that will fit the program so that the, the blind or partially sighted viewer is really getting the experience and you also have to find an appropriate style of language that would enable you to describe uh, people in a way that is not in any way deprecatory or in any way using loaded language. You need to find a way that is, is you know, is supportive of the program idea, which is that we all come in different shapes and sizes, and it's it's kind of that's kind of great. Right. And so the AD, uh, the describe video piece, really has to reflect that. And, I think what we're seeing in a again to sort of step back maybe slightly if we're looking at the future it may not always be about ai or automated uh production processes but thinking about how for instance we can incorporate uh audio description principles into the program generally itv in the uk did a not not one of our, our customers they, they do their own ad did a really nice thing recently with one of their shows love island which is a which is a a, a reality dating show where the various contestants did a walk-on and they described themselves in, in or using audio description principles in their voices they described themselves and again that was completely fitting with the program and was a nice way of thinking how can we incorporate accessibility earlier on in the production process so so it's not just a post-production process so you know we tackle these things in different ways in, in terms of acceptance i think we see we will see uh customers and broadcasters increasingly looking at it we're looking at it at the moment we're, we're actively looking at it in response to a customer uh question and i think i think the main thing we see at the moment is a recognition that it's most appropriate for documentary content that the lack of emotional range and range and nuance and i agree with mike that that will develop over time and as the as the ai develops but that that is that is not necessarily appropriate for dramatic content to give the the accessibility that they need, but it is and can be used successfully for different types of documentary content. Wonderful. Tom, that's a great answer. And I agree with you 100% on the challenges are, you know, never ending on how we approach to variety uh, of, of, of content here. Um, the one thing I was wondering, um, with the with the advances of, of of our technologies and our deliveries to the streamers it's not just obviously broadcasters anymore or corporate we've got challenges going to the streamers and i'm just wondering have you have you found that it's been more challenging uh the delivery of the content to them or is it is it pretty much as normal as it would be to any broadcaster i know that there's things like 5.1 maybe coming in, as a requirement, uh, 5.1 audio on audio description. Um, are, are you guys finding any different challenges? I mean, uh, I'll, I'll take that one quickly. So I think Mike, you know, has has a lot of experience in this area. So I'll sort of tee up my view of it a little bit, which is that 
Um, I mean, first to say broadcasters and networks aren't just broadcasters and networks and haven't been for some time. I mean, I think BBC's iPlayer has been around since 2007. So when we talk about streaming, we should recognise that's a competence across all sorts of areas, including independent streamers and, of course, the networks and broadcasters. Uh, so it's a challenge regardless of who you're serving. Is, is, is my point. Um, and I, I, think, I think the main challenge that I see really is that the platforms that you can be delivering to and the, the platforms where content is distributed are increasingly varied. Uh, both in terms of the end hardware that are being watched on, but also the the different types of proprietorial streaming platforms that different organizations have. It's not always easy to guarantee the presentation of accessibility consistently across those platforms. And I, I think I, I, I will hand over to Mike now, but that would be a sort of high level initial view about one of the challenges of providing accessibility consistently across different types of streaming platform. I agree, and I'm going to... Um expand the topic slightly to also include um, VOD uh, uh, as a topic. Um, I'm on a uh, steering committee that's exploring how to get more DV onto VOD uh, platforms. So um, this is a one of the more common criticisms that we're hearing from um, users of accessibility who want more descriptions. Um, they're increasingly unable to watch content in real time. They want to watch it on VOD. And in, in some cases, depending on the platform or the equipment that's being used, they're not able to access it. So to Tom's point, um, I think that right now, one of the problems is uh, we're seeing sort of a lack of a singular standard, um, a singular approach. Um, across all platforms. And so as accessibility service providers, um, frequently we will be providing files to uh, production houses or um, distributors, and then they'll come back and they'll, they'll, they'll reference a, a recent sale and how the file that they've purchased um, can't be used as is um, on, a, on a secondary platform. And so revisions will be required. And so um, as an industry as a whole, I think it would be better if we could find uh, a more universal approach to some of these uh, challenges. Um, but I think in some ways the streamers uh, are setting a high bar for accessibility. Um, and as technological in innovators, I think there's even some opportunity for them to go further um, than they presently have. Uh, 5.1 audio feels like something that they could take on earlier than some broadcast platforms would be uh, able to, for example. And I think the industry as a whole would benefit from um, such an initiative. So um, I know that for ourselves, you know, we're interested and looking to uh, meet the demands of customers uh, for any type of innovation that will make the experience in the home more enjoyable. Yeah, Mike, you, you did touch on something uh, in a prior conversation, uh, giving the ability to the viewer or the consumer uh, some options, could you? Uh, yeah, yeah, so, so um, I think of it, I think that originally um, when closed captioning and subtitling first hit the web, 
Um, some of the web players were very basic and you would have a very s small text in a certain type of font and that was it. Um, increasingly, players um, allowed different user options, different font sizes, different color options. And I could see something similar perhaps occurring in the future of described video um, or AD as others call it. Um, I think that this could be one of the more interesting um, developments within described video because then you could theoretically allow the listener to choose their favorite voice. Um, the writing would be similar, Wonderful. but they could perhaps select from a drop-down menu one of any five you know, voices that, uh, that they personally prefer, and that could make that experience more customizable and enjoyable to uh, each particular person. That's that. That is great. I think the more options that we give our consumers within accessibility is going to be obviously part of our future and our future growth. One thing I'd like to touch on probably before we wrap, guys, Tom, within North America, I don't see and I could be wrong, but I don't see a lot of sign sign language uh, being provided by broadcasters and in corporate. We, we, we do see it a little bit more in live corporate. Uh, videos. But I would also ask you, you're talking about the future here, but sign is, uh, has been around for a very long time. And I think Redby is doing something very innovative with sign. Uh, so bringing sign into the future of accessibility also is wonderful because it's not being left behind. I'm wondering if you could talk, talk about that, Tom, and what Redby is doing you know, on that front. No, thanks, Colin. And yes, yeah, I'm pleased you asked that. Um, sign language uh, is a first thing to, for anyone to remember is it is a language in itself. It's not just a version of English or French or Spanish. It's a language. Uh, and, and therefore, like most languages, the native speakers of that sign language will be the people who are most fluent in it. Um, so there are excellent hearing interpreters out there. Um, who who provide an awful lot of signed content in the UK has has quite a lot of regulation around signed content. We're doing it in Spain now. We just launched in Australia. Um, it's worth noting, just to your point, I think in the US you, you do see actually corporations and government to to a certain degree. COVID drove a lot of uh, sign language accessibility for what were critical national announcements and things like that. But maybe it hasn't found its way into the the wider media industry. Um, what we've done, um, it's, it's great because it's, it's really good for our teams as well, which is always always good when you're innovating. You don't want it to feel like a threat. It should feel like an opportunity for them. Um, obviously, one of the challenges if you're signing live content is you, you kind of need it. You kind of need to be able to hear what's going on in order to sign it. So that's always necessitated for news or sporting events. It's necessitated a hearing interpreter. Um, they're very good at what they do, as I say, but would be fantastic if you can use deaf uh many of them profoundly deaf from birth native users of of british sign language in this case so we put together a system uh which effectively took the fact that we acquire a low latency pre-encoding feed for our for our caption creation uh for news programs and sport feed that feed those captions that we're doing already feed it through to the studio where the sign is standing uh, so you can have a profoundly deaf signer reading the captions that we're creating, signing the captions we're creating, and providing a native BSL experience, British Sign Language experience, for any British Sign Language um, viewer watching the live event. 
it's fantastic. You've got the team who are able to engage with the community uh, in a way that wouldn't otherwise be possible. I remember, um, I remember we had a conversation with a, with a, a CTO uh, last year. He was talking to our deaf team and he came out of that, our deaf signing team, and he came out of that and he said to me, and this is a, this is a view that I found shared across the broadcast industry, by the way. He said, talking to your sign language team made me realize I don't want any person who might want to be able to enjoy our content or, or watch our programs to be left behind. I want every single person in our audience to be able to access that content and enjoy that content. That's what we're here for. And I, I just thought that was a fantastic summary of why we do accessibility in the first place and why we innovate as well to ensure that there's more accessibility on behalf of broadcasters, networks, media, businesses, and, and things like that. So we're delighted to be part of that, to be honest. Truly inspiring, Tom. That is uh, the leadership we need for our consumers uh, across the board. And that is wonderful. I, I, I love that story. I love what you guys are doing with Sign. And I think uh, once that uh, becomes a lot more successful in Europe and the UK, we'll see it coming over here to the the uh, North America broadcasters. Guys, uh, just in wrapping, I want to say thank you. I mean, it's been incredible to have both Tom and Mike on the on the podcast today. Because of your knowledge, uh, you, I don't want to say you're veterans off the uh, industry, but you are veterans off the industry. You're titans. Your knowledge is, is key in how we move forward uh, with technology and with uh, regulations and process. And I, I truly want to thank both of you today for being on the podcast. I would love to also thank Scout Hammond for putting this together for the EGA. Guys, I hope we can do it again with another wide variety of topics. Uh, but again, thank you again for your contribution to the industry and uh, to today's podcast. It was a pleasure, Colin. Thank you, Thank you Tom. for having me. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk soon. Join us next time when we share more stories about elevating the art and science of global storytelling.